You're listening to The Whole Church Podcast. Our efforts to educate and unite the church are made possible thanks to our sponsors on Captivate and on Patreon. You can get bonus content of our show on either of those platforms or on Apple Podcasts with a private subscription to the Amazal Ministries Podcast Network. First Peter chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 in the New American Standard Bible. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God on the day of his visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, as to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right, For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you silence the ignorance of foolish people. Act as free people, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So here, the writer of 1 Peter, assumedly Peter, is directing the church on how to behave in public circles. The the church is instructed to obey human institutions, And um, political structures of the time are directly mentioned in this section of scripture. Um, Caitlin Chess, how can our submission to governments be a witness of God, like Peter suggests here? Oh, yeah, you picked like a rough one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, but I think the way you framed it is a good question, um, because I think we often go to those passages, Romans 13 being another one that's often referenced in in Mm -hmm. relationship to this one, and say, okay, this is the political teaching of Scripture. The political teaching of Scripture is obey the government. And it is one of the political teachings of Scripture. I think there's lots of others that are relevant. But it's important that as you just, I I love that you read that whole section, very similarly, the Romans 13 reference, if you read all of Romans 13 and you read Romans 12 that comes before it, you see that these instructions are not just a theoretical abstract teaching on politics. They're couched in terms of the faithfulness of the church. And both are contextually situated. Um, They're thinking, they're not imagining really, not any of these writers imagining a situation in which Christians would have significant political power. So it's not like they were really very likely to give instructions of, oh, take control of things and have things run. <laughs> you know, yeah. They should. But I do think the teaching that is still incredibly relevant for us is that is is found not only in this passage, but as I said, um, before Romans 13, Romans 12 is so focused on leaving vengeance up to God, not taking things into our own hands. And I think the teaching of this passage as well is we witness to the faithfulness of God by saying we will live faithful lives. We will seek justice. We will seek flourishing in our communities, but we will not engage politically as people who do not believe in the resurrection of the dead and the ultimate redemption of all things. There are certain corners we will not cut, certain means of getting what we want that we will not take because we believe in the ultimate redemption of all things that is coming beyond human powers. Amen. Hey guys, welcome to the Whole Church Podcast, potentially your favorite church unity podcast, home of who is definitely your favorite co-host of any podcast, the greatest co-host to ever co-host a podcast, TJ Blackwell, Tiberius Wan. How's it going? Uh, it's going great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And we are joined by actually one of my favorite podcasters. I don't know if you consider it a co-host or not, but uh, yeah. one of my favorite authors, um, her first book really inspired me. We're going to get to talk about it as well as her upcoming book, um, The Bible in the Ballot. I know there's a subtitle. My brain's blinking. If you just do Bible in the Ballot and come up with Trimper Longman's book, he's been a guest too. He's a good guy. But Caitlin Chess, welcome to the whole church <laughs> podcast. Thank you. It is so great to have you here. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to hold us up. I'm just going to let you guys know we're going to be talking about her book coming out. We're going to be talking about the intersection of faith and politics, as well as some about uh, some of the decisions the Supreme Court's made, just kind of getting Caitlin's take while she's here. Yeah. Uh, make sure to check out the Honest Ministries podcast, AMP Network website. The link is in the show notes. We're partnered with a bunch of other shows. Uh, check us out. Check out our friends. Definitely not colluding. Um, or anything yeah and, uh, chat with us on our discord server it's fun it's a it's an easy way to talk to us ask us questions that you might want to know the answers to that we, we might be willing to answer well more realistically we might be willing to ask somebody else who knows the answer and then tell you what they said <laughs> yeah 
Well, Caitlin, I have a favorite form of unity. Um, a spiritual practice we do on the show is uh, <laughs> silliness. Mm, I'm familiar. We're, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I just like to start every show off with just a silly question. And TJ and I will answer first, give you time to think about it. Great. If you had to play pool volleyball with a team of any one type of sea creature, for the purposes of this, they'll survive whether they're, they're saltwater or not. <laughs> Which creatures would you choose as your teammates? I'm also going to assume that they can learn how to play. Good. Because why would you not assume that? I'm going to give a terrible answer because I, I just, I wrote a question that was like a trap for myself. I don't know why I did that because like there's no possible way I couldn't say sea turtles. It's just my favorite creature. I just want to be around them. Like, I don't care. We're going to lose. I'm going to be in a pool full of sea turtles. So I'm going to be happy yeah. losing to TJ with my sea turtles. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a fun question, but I'm very competitive, so I'm going to say dolphins. Yeah, like dolphin and seals are probably like the answer. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Although. I, I mean, I was thinking I'm also very competitive. I was thinking seahorses, which are small, but I think maybe I'm making this up. Maybe I'm lying to myself. I think that maybe in parts of the ocean, they're bigger than the ones that we know. And I, I think they would be good at, at polygon. Yeah. This is a, I think it's, that. I think it's called the greater seahorse. It, it can be like a foot. Yeah. See? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Also, I think a killer whale would have been a pretty killer answer. Yeah. Killer whale <laughs> would be good. I just, I was yeah. worried about the size of the pool. That's yeah, what I was thinking. Yeah. Like, they're large enough. I, I really only need one as my teammate. <laughs> We're going to yeah. spike it. <laughs> yeah. So. That's fair. Yeah. For for the real show, spiking in pool volleyball is not fair. Uh, so <laughs> for the, for the real show, personal opinion, uh, Caitlin, before we discuss your book today, uh, for those who may be less familiar with you or your work, could you share a bit about your testimony and your relationship with God and the church? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I uh, grew up in a Christian context. I was in church all of the time. Uh, my dad was in the military, is still in the military, so we moved around a lot. Um, but basically everywhere we moved, my mom would work at a church nearby. We would always get pretty quickly involved in a church. And I had a really positive experience of church. I was mostly in pretty conservative evangelical churches, but I was really deeply cared for and encountered Jesus in a positive way at a really young age. Um, I watched my parents really serve people well. I mean, I have memories of them taking care of people's material needs in really practical ways as a result of their faith. Um, and then I, uh, went to college, I went to Liberty university and I'd gone to public school my whole life. I thought I should go to a Christian school and learn some Christian things. And, um, I was there during a particularly tumultuous political time at Liberty. I was there from 2012 yeah. <laughs> to 2016. Um, and for people who are not familiar, not only does Liberty kind of have a longer history of political involvement. Its founder, Jerry Falwell Sr. was the beginner, the founder of the Moral Majority, uh, was deeply involved in American politics, especially in the 70s and 80s. Um, and then his son, Jerry Falwell Jr., was the president when I was there. And when I started in 2012, you know, wasn't very politically involved, but became very politically involved in the 2016 election, was one of the earliest vocal evangelical supporters of Donald Trump. And outside of Trump, we just had a lot of politicians on campus, a lot of media on campus. So that was my kind of college experience. And it was a little bit of a um, testing of my faith, I guess. It was definitely a period in which I asked a lot of new theological questions and kind of figured out what I believed that might be different from my parents or from the churches or traditions I grew up in um, and thought I was going to go to school to to go to law school afterwards. That was kind of always the goal. I was a debater in college. I loved arguments. I loved school. I thought the idea of just like studying law was really exciting. And then got kind of forced into working at a summer camp. When your mom works at the church, you can get forced <laughs> yeah. into things and got forced into uh, leading a group of uh, middle school girls for a week of camp, which just was truly the worst thing I could imagine. Like I mm -hmm. really did not want to do it. And had this profound experience that was not initially something I thought was directing me towards ministry. I just thought it really reoriented what I thought was valuable. It was kind of a profound experience of God and a helping me reflect on the ways in which I was really kind of exclusively oriented towards success and wasn't really asking questions about what I should be doing or what God might be directing me to do. And so my whole last year of college, I was really searching for what I should do next. What would faithfulness look like for me? And felt very strongly that I should go to seminary, even though I had no <laughs> aspirations of like what that meant. I was not in a church that 
ordained women or really had a lot of significant roles for women. And so there wasn't a job at the end of the line I was interested in. I just thought, I think I'm just supposed to go study the Bible. I remember telling my parents, like, if I work at McDonald's for the rest of my life, great. I just know I'm supposed to go study the Bible. I don't know what's next. Yeah. And went to Dallas Theological Seminary, um, changed my views about women's roles in ministry, but also just became really invested in conversations around spiritual formation and political engagement and kind of discovered that political theology was both a field that exists today and a robust Christian tradition, that there are lots of resources around the world and across time. And so pretty early in seminary, it became clear to me, the 2016 election was still happening my first year, became really clear to me, like, I think this is the rest of my life. I think this is what I'm going to do forever. Yeah. And now you are at Duke studying as well? Yes. Yeah. So towards the end of seminary, I kind of realized... I think I'm not done with school. Like, I think I need to learn more. <laughs> yeah. um, Apply to a bunch of PhD programs, but Duke um, has been the, the best spot for mm. me, both in terms of having a very different uh, theological context than I've ever been in. I've been in pretty conservative evangelical institutions. And so Duke has a lot more theological diversity. And I have did about half of my coursework outside of the Divinity School in political theory and philosophy and literature. And so getting that element of it too was also really important to me. Man, so just just a couple things, and because otherwise TJ will will start texting me that I need to move on. But <laughs> I um at Dallas Theological Seminary is where you changed your view on women in ministry, and I think a lot of people <laughs> think of that as like a pretty conservative school still. So, mm-hmm. um, why why there? Why is that what kind of changed things for you? Part of it was before I got to DTS, I really spent the summer in between college and seminary reading everything I could get my hands on on the question about women because I was like, Mm -hmm. if I'm going to go do this, this is personal now in a way that it never was personal before. It didn't really – it was the water I swam in, first of all, a pretty complementarian church context, but also it just hadn't really occurred to me to think that much about it. And so I spent that whole summer just truly reading everything. And I really did go in going like – Wherever this leads me is where I will be. Again, I didn't have aspirations. I wasn't like wanting to preach. So I wasn't going in being like, help me figure out a way to justify that. (laughs) I really was just like, what should I do, God? You know? Um, So by the time I got to DTS, I had changed my mind about certain things. I had changed my mind about what seemed to me before to be prohibitions against women preaching or teaching men. Um, I hadn't quite changed my mind to be kind of fully egalitarian yet. And it really was, you know, taking five semesters of Greek, and especially the one semester we did that was fully (laughs) focused on Ephesians. And it was really reading a lot of the conservative scholars on the marriage question in Ephesians that actually kind of pushed me towards an egalitarian perspective. I I found that a lot of their arguments when they got to chapter five were flimsier than their arguments in the rest of the book. Um, And it pushed me to kind of read more widely than my classes were normally encouraging me to read on that subject, at least. And so... um, Yeah, I don't think it was either because or not because of DTS. I had some great professors that really were like, yeah, here's books to read, like ask these questions, go down rabbit trails, figure out what you think. And I don't think where I ended up at the end of my time there is the typical Mm -hmm. trajectory. But I also will say after being there and kind of having some frustrations with some of my theological disagreements there, I'm now at Duke and it's amazing how conservative I feel here and how much I feel like, <laughs> yeah. ooh, there's that's a lot jarring. of things that I thought weren't that important. You know, maybe I'm more conservative on this issue, but I don't think it's that big a deal. And then hearing opposition to that, that I, I don't think is great opposition, like arguments I don't think are great have really made me think, oh, actually, some of these things I didn't think that were that important are kind of important. And I do really feel sort of conservative in other ways here. So I think it's been good to have those two experiences of like, there are problems, both theological problems and just like cultural problems at all of these places. And having the experience mm-hmm. in both helped me see like, oh, it's not, not that I wanted to spend the rest of my life like railing against conservative <laughs> churches, but it yeah. did help to kind of go like, oh, there's a ditch on either side of this road. And I, I want to know what it is. Yeah, I feel like that's, that's how I feel about most things generally is I'm not super strongly opinionated until I hear a bad argument for the other <laughs> side of any issue. And then I'm like, okay, yeah. well, let's let's start over. <laughs> yeah. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, um, man. So you, you mentioned a lot about your time at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary where you kind of changed some of your views of women in ministry. Um, if I'm thinking correctly, you also wrote your first book while you were at Dallas Theological Seminary, right? Yes. Yeah. So, that's sort of where, ironically, I discovered you through the book first. And then you were on my favorite podcast, the Holy Post podcast, <laughs> which I guess this should be my favorite podcast. But oh well, sorry, Probably. guys. I need to break the news <laughs> to everybody. Um, 
<laughs> but yeah, your first book, The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. Um, ironically, I actually, I read that hand in hand with um, Augustine's City of God. I say hand in hand. I read like one chapter of each and then it became just only his for such a long sure, time. It's sure. such a long Oh, book. but I love that so <laughs> much. You've made books. my day hearing that. Wow. Man. Well, I really feel like for, for me, your work helped me make sense of the older work just because I'm like, yeah. I feel like I'm not like as equipped to fully understand a lot of the stuff that he was writing and your stuff. I was like, no, that's my world. I understand this world. Good. Oh, that's yeah. so good to hear. Huh. Yeah. No. So thank you. And also, um, could you share just some about what first inspired you to kind of get involved or, you know, write that book and then get involved in this kind of intersection of faith and politics? Yeah, yeah. So uh, it was not planning on writing a book while I was in seminary. <laughs> Would not necessarily <laughs> recommend doing that. Yeah. Um, wouldn't necessarily recommend writing a book when you're 24, which is what I was when I wrote it. Um, wow, okay. I Thank did. You for I, that. I won't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I agonized over it. I really did. And I, I had a very wise friend who said to me finally at one point, "Do you want this book in the world, even if your name isn't on it?" And I was like, yeah, I do. Like, I just think this is important. And that was a clarifying yeah. um, question for me. Um, yeah, I mean, I came to it mostly because, as I said earlier, I was like finishing up college during the 2016 election, starting seminary. I mean, my whole world, my last year of college was like national media, you know, big <laughs> yeah. politicians on campus. It was a lot of like it was in your face. So you had to think about it. Mm -hmm. um, and then my first semester of seminary, the election was actually happening that semester. So there was tons of conversations on campus about it. And that same year, there was kind of, I think a lot of, especially in publishing that year, there was this big renaissance of like in, interest in spiritual formation among evangelicals. Like we don't have to be scared of spiritual disciplines and we can learn things from other traditions. And I, there was a lot of interest at the time. <laughs> yeah. And so I took a lot of classes in seminary on spiritual formation. And I actually took a class called uh, Spiritual Formation in Contemporary Context. Ooh. And we had all these units on like race and gender and, you know, consumerism and all this stuff. And we were supposed to have a unit at the end on politics. And I was so excited about it. And then this professor who I adore, mentor of mine, like just didn't get to that unit. He mm. talks a lot and like we just didn't get there. And so yeah. I wrote my whole final paper on how we should have gotten there and why that was like the important thing for us to talk about. And I went through all the other units and I was like, here's why politics actually has something to say to all of these things. Here's why it's all connected. And he was incredibly gracious instead of being mad at me for like writing a paper about how he messed up his class. He <laughs> yeah. was like, I think you need to keep studying this. Like we should do an independent study. We should get you kind of reading some more on it. And that coincided really well with a publisher reaching out to me and saying, you know, are you thinking about writing a book? And I was like, well, I think I'm going to spend the next year at least just reading all this stuff and studying it. And so sure, I'll do that. And it really did end <laughs> yeah. up being, that book really was like my attempt to say both he read like think about all these things that I've been thinking about for people who are not going to read the tons of books I was reading. And I was especially thinking about the people who were going to graduate with me who I was not thinking I'm going to go into pastoral ministry of any kind, but most of my peers were. And I just thought, you need to be thinking about these questions. It's totally understandable that in the throes of pastoral ministry, you're not going to read the hundred books that I read for this book. But would you could you just read this one to start thinking about some of these questions about practice and habit and congregational worship and how all of those things are tools the church historically has had to address the political problems we're facing now. And mostly it was me just trying to say like, I'm young, like this is not me saying like, I have the plan to figure it out. This is me <laughs> saying, maybe we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Maybe there are some resources that have been available to us that we could lean on. And I'm mostly saying it as me because I don't see this resource out there and I want this to be out there. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Um, interestingly enough, since I first read that, my own journey, I've kind of went from a more, I'd say a more conservative church that didn't really do a lot of liturgy, which is funny because mm. a lot of liturgical practices are talked about in the book. And I was only vaguely familiar with a lot of them. And now rereading it recently, I was like, oh, so much more of this makes sense in a different <laughs> way now that I actually do these things. Um, but one of the things that was interesting for me going from that kind of more Baptocostal is what some people mm. call the church I was going yeah. to, to a, I attend like a Lutheran church. Sometimes I go to a Methodist mm. church now, but what was weird was the breath of air it was to not hear so much about politics because mm. something I care so much about is like the intersection of faith and politics, but getting to a church that's not every single Sunday, why conservatism is wrong and there's a party that hates God, but we're not going to say who it was, <laughs> you know, like I'm like somehow getting away from that was just really a breath of fresh air, which I still feel the same way when I read your stuff. So I don't know. I guess my question is, why is it 
even when you're talking about politics, yeah. it still doesn't feel as burdensome as when you hear some of some pastors who do actually talk about these things. I think part of it is the difference between partisan talk and political talk. Mm -hmm. um, I had a friend when I was writing the book who said something similar to me about how him and his wife were at a new church and he was like, I'm just so glad it's not so political. And I bristled at it because I'm like in the middle of writing this book about how the church is political <laughs> yeah. and we should be political. But what I reflected on it later was like what he meant was he had been at a big mega church in our area. We were in Dallas, which has a lot of like conservative mega churches that are very politically involved. Mm -hmm. yep. And what he was sick of was really substituting the gospel with political motivations and goals mm -hmm. and partisan ones, like really like it, it's this party that's right. These are the policies that you have to believe to be a Christian. Um, and it didn't feel like it was being faithful to the gospel that has handed, has been handed down to us. Mm -hmm. Whereas what I want people to think in terms of the church is political and our lives are political and we can't help it. And it should be that way. And that's the orientation of the people of God. What I mean is you are for the life of the world and we're not going to, you know, I don't want a pastor to get up on a Sunday morning and say, like, here's the policies you should care about. Here's the person you should vote for. But what I mm -hmm. don't want is a pastor who's afraid of offending people or afraid of being labeled political coming to a passage. And there are so many of them that talk about how we treat the foreigner or the widow or the orphan and saying, I, I just that's political and I don't want to get into that um, mm -hmm. or a church out of fear of kind of contamination from other sources, not partnering with other organizations in their community to reach really practical local political goals. Like I've been encouraged, mm -hmm. the city that I live in now in Durham has this incredible robust history of churches, primarily black churches in our city being very politically involved in ways that might surprise people who are like, I don't want the church to be political because they're not I'm just showing you what team I'm on. And it's this team. It's the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. And I go along with them and they shape my theology more than I shape what they're doing. It's been people going, we need these things in our community. And so we're going to, it's going to take organization to make it happen. It's going to take the work of coalition building of politics. And so we're going to do that. And we think actually we have great spiritual resources for sustaining us through the difficulty of that work. And so it's going to be deeply Christian while we're doing it. Um, that's very different than here's a voter guide. Actually, to be a Christian is to vote this kind of way. Instead saying, God cares about our communities and our orientation to our communities. We might disagree about the best way to serve them, but we're going to work together to find compromise and to, and to even if it's small basic goals that we really probably won't disagree on. Like, do we think that the poorest neighborhoods in our city should have good public schools? Yeah. Do we disagree yeah. maybe about how we can get there? Sure. But then we're at the table. Then we're talking. Then we're working together. That's politics too. Whereas when I say, you know, education policy, you're thinking like someone on Facebook posting a rant about all of the kind of opinions they have. Yeah. That's very, those are very different <laughs> conversations. One of those I think is really deeply partisan. One of them I think is actually more political than the other one. Yeah. No, I like that. Yeah. We actually, we have a friend who's a pastor in Chapel Hill and I just hear all the time, just these crazy stories of the churches working together in Chapel Hill and Durham and Raleigh. And I'm like, man, that area just seems like it's a uh, figure something out that a lot of us haven't. <laughs> There's some cool yeah. stuff happening. Yeah. yeah. There's something yeah. something magical about the triangle, you know? Yeah. I do love I do love the triangle. <laughs> it's true. But your your other book, the newest book, uh, The Ballot and the Bible, how scripture has been used and abused in American politics and where we go from here, which it's like that's a title. That's like a research <laughs> paper title. Uh, it focuses <laughs> on the history of how scripture has been used in American politics. And one thing that stood out to us is how you mentioned the revolutionary and civil wars. Uh, so what inspired you to write such a thorough history of the intersection between faith and politics? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I initially, I just wanted to write more about practically how people can interpret the Bible better in political contexts. And I want to see, I mean, I, it's such a burden for me right now, the generational differences among a lot of churches. Like when we talk about political division in our churches, we're often very much talking about generational differences. It's not always that way, but it is very often that way. And I just kept thinking like, we have this shared source of authority. I, I want our politics to be shaped by scripture. And I want our communities to have something, even if we disagree, that we can come together on and say, okay, we're working this out with this text. That's what we're doing. We're under its authority. And yet that's not how the Bible often actually functions in our political conversations. We just like lob verses against each other. We act like we're the Bible believing people and they're the ones that aren't. So I wanted to write about that, but I wanted to both find tangible examples that people could work through. I didn't want this to be all abstract, conceptual. I, I really think theology is best done when it's in the nitty gritty 
of people's lived experience and like what what is demanded of us here and now? Like those are the questions we're asking. But I also didn't want to jump in and be like, and here's what the Bible says about this issue today. Um, over the last couple of years, I've done a lot of like going to churches and doing, you know, workshops or conversations, trying to get people in congregations to talk better about this. And I've learned that if the the church says, okay, Tuesday night, Caitlin Chess is coming, we're going to hash it out with politics, bad. Like it's everyone comes <laughs> mad, comes with walls yeah. up. I know what you think. You know what I think. If If we come and have a conversation in a Bible study context... Or if I preach a sermon and we have some discussion afterwards, it's a very different vibe, both because it's not inviting conflict, which is what people's association is with, we're going to talk about politics, but also it's starting with scripture. And just like in this hopefully lower temperature context, we agree about the authority of scripture. Like, let's talk about our interpretation differences. Let's talk about our our differences in politics. And so I thought that the best way to do that was to look at historical examples, because hopefully, especially in the American context, we feel some connection to that. When I talk about the Revolutionary War, people feel some kind of way about it in the way they don't feel about the French Revolution or some war in some other country. And yet it's distanced enough that like no family is fighting over Thanksgiving about the loyalists versus the patriots. Like no one's upset about that today in a really <laughs> visceral kind of identity-based way. Hopefully and not. So, hopefully not. And so <laughs> I, I really thought, how can I give people specific, tangible examples to think through that give them some distance. And then once I started working on that, I also thought, well, actually, another part of this that's important is we don't interpret scripture for politics in a vacuum. Like we inherit certain habits and ways of thinking from not just our church traditions. Actually, when it comes to politics, we probably inherit more from our American context than we do from a specifically, you know, Anglican or Lutheran or Presbyterian way of reading scripture. And so I also thought, okay, how can I display that by giving a little bit of a taste of what was happening in biblical interpretation in some of these periods, just to say, if some of this sounds familiar to you, this isn't how Christians have always done things in all times and places. This is specific to us, which doesn't mean it's bad. It could be worth keeping, but let's kind of show that it's not inevitable. It's it's contingent. And so that means that we can criticize it or reflect on it or see how it's shaped us in ways that could be good, but could also be bad. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to use this time real quick to, to do a shameless plug and compliment of your book. So first, I love that like when your book comes out right around this season where I know we're going to start getting some of the nomination debates coming up soon, I don't have to worry that this is another Christian book trying to convince me that I need to vote for the right person. Like that just I'm like, yeah, this is like actually going to make me think about the things in a Mm -hmm. good way in a season where we need to be thinking about these things. Um, The shameless plug being Systematic Ecology, our other podcast, we started doing a series where we're looking at like some of the different fandoms and like political thrillers and stuff. We're going to talk like Captain America, Winter Soldier, and just looking about like what those stories are trying to tell us. So we're trying to do kind of the same thing, but, you know, a lot less serious, not like Bible (laughs) stuff, but more like, hey, what do these shows tell us and how do we think about that as Christians? So yeah, Yeah. not the real Civil War, yeah, Marvel Civil War. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Air Force One. Also not the real one, but the real Harrison Ford. And, uh, you know, I could vote for him for president. If for some reason he was running, you know. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Think- <laughs> Age, but- He's a nice guy, you know. <laughs> you know, so one interesting point of tension we believe you look at in this work is the difference of how slave owners use scripture to justify owning slaves. And slaves, you know, saw themselves as being the Exodus story. Uh, Could you expound on the differences here and what we should learn from the difference for our own time now? Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, this is one area of biblical interpretation in American history that so much has been written on. Like, you can read so many books about this. And what I found so interesting was a lot of the books, especially the ones that are not so recent, but even some of the recent ones, really paint the debate as white abolitionists and white slave owning people. And they'll say, okay, which of these interpretive methods is better? And of course, like, first of all, we know which result was better. Absolutely. Um, (laughs) But what often it's described as is the white slave holders had a literal approach to the Bible, which is just, I I hate the way that word gets used, both in terms of like, you know, kind of a weapon to be like, I'm the one that has a literal interpretation. I also hate in a lot of this literature, how it's just assumed that that's kind of the simplistic backward way of thinking. Um, Mm -hmm. I can say more about that in a minute, but like, so that's the way it's described. (laughs) The white slaveholders, literal approach. Paul says, slaves obey your masters. Abraham owned slave, you know, handful of verses, bam, there you go. And then they, they describe the white abolitionists, 
as really being shaped by what was kind of current biblical scholarship in Europe at the time, um, especially sort of looking um, at historical details and kind of seeing like what was actually at the root of the historical context when this was written. And then also this attempt to kind of say, let's get rid of those historical particularities and let's look for the germ of truth. And the germ of truth at the bottom of all of this is love. And so love is in opposition to enslaving humans, which I agree with. Um, but that's how the, the <laughs> debate's often framed. Not enough attention, I think, is paid. More is, is happening now, but not enough has been paid to the way that both enslaved and free Black interpreters did neither of those things. It's not like they took the abolitionist side and just said, okay, yeah, what these white people are doing with the Bible is exactly what we should do. That's not what they did. Ironically, they took a very literal approach in some ways and said, <laughs> God literally freed Israel from Egypt. What does that tell us about who God is and how God's people function? And where do we see ourselves in this story? It's not just history. It's also not, you know, historical particularity that needs to get kind of moved away so we can get to this universally applicable truth, which is kind of what both sides of, of the white interpreters were doing. They said, no, the historical particularity is the important part. Let's look at this story of Pharaoh and Moses and the people coming out of Egypt and say, we see ourselves in that story. And that tells us what role we should be playing in the divine drama today. And that's, I mean, that's a very different approach than either of those. And I think it pushes against our instinct today that to be liberating or to be progressive or to kind of have the Bible be used for good political ends means we can't be literal or means we can't take it too seriously or means we can't get in the weeds of the details. Um, the, the best interpreters, I think, in that period were taking it incredibly literally. They were also asking a lot of good interpretive questions about what that requires of us now. And that, I think, is a good model for us to think about today as well. Yeah, I um reminds me of a lot of like uh, legal theories. For those who listen to the show in a while, probably know I'm thinking about getting into law school, doing some of the preliminary work and all of that stuff at the moment. But, um, you know, a lot of times people do this where they hear a court opinion and assume it's good or bad just because of the outcome. Hmm. And not actually because of how it was decided. So that was really interesting. A, a very progressive lawyer, who like all of his opinions are pretty progressive, but still holds to an originalist view, which I think is like court speak, if we're like translating this, would be, you know, the literalist biblical yeah. interpretation. Yeah. Kind of like, I feel like it parallels pretty well. But yeah. um, Akil Reed Amar, he very much does an originalist interpretation of everything and goes, yeah, no, that should lead us to these progressive outcomes. It's like, yeah, outcome doesn't determine whether the interpretation was good or not, actually. Yeah. 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 I think that's something we need to learn better in uh, probably both our politics and our Bible yes. reading. Yeah. 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 So another moment that I know, actually, I'm pretty sure is in your book. Um, it doesn't come out to August 22nd for those listening or checking this out because I believe this show, yeah, this show is going to come out way before then. Um, but... I know because I find little excerpts and I read about it and I've been geeking out waiting for this book to come out <laughs> that um, you do mention how our country treated 9-11 and the church in particular, how we dealt with some of the outcome of that. Um, could you explain just how some of the religious rhetoric of that time still has influence in our conversations in American politics today? Yeah, I mean, the the most significant way that this comes up in the book is in talking about how America relates to the religion of our presidents and how important it's often been for us to know that our presidents are Christian and to have those presidents give kind of Christian responses to things. So a lot of people will look back at Bush's, um, George W. Bush's presidency, and they'll see his response to 9-11 as this really significant moment. Um, and, and a lot of people who I was pretty young at the time, so I, I don't really remember what it was like after that, but people who... Same. Yeah, people who do remember that will talk about, um, you know, the churches were full the Sunday after 9-11. And it's been true in American history. It's been true in the history of other countries that in times of great crisis, in times of war, people often look to the church for community and stability and a sense of identity and purpose. But what's been distinct about American history is we have never had a true state church, unlike many other countries. Um, and so we don't have that kind of history of like that type of you know, religious and national identity being combined. And yet we're a country that cared so much about a religious identity from the very beginning, especially the resurgence post the Cold War. We've really cared about being a Christian nation. But because we don't have a state church and because we have great theological disagreements in a variety of denominations and all of this kind of stuff, we place a lot of emphasis on our president 
being that kind of religious leader or exemplar. Um, and so in the chapter on um, the American presidency, I focus on George W. Bush and Obama and kind of talk about how they display different like ways of showing Christian identity or, or identifying with a Christian community. Obama uses a lot of Christian language, a lot of distinctly Christian language. He talks about Jesus way more than Bush did. Um, he talks about the specific moral tradition of Christianity and how it has played a role in the politics of, of the American country. He gave a speech um, early in his political career where he, he kind of scolded the Democratic Party for not using religious language enough. He was like, this is the moral language of our country. Like we have to talk about, again, relying on this kind of black church tradition, we have to talk about Moses. We've got to talk about Joshua. We've got to talk about Pharaoh. Like the, this is the language of our country when it comes to moral and social reform. Whereas Bush, and I think the 9-11 example is a good um, example of this, Bush really relied on identity. I'm on your team. I'm a Christian. Like he he told a very convincing, very classic evangelical conversion story, even though it was at a, a mainline church in Texas. Still in Texas, mainline church is pretty evangelical. Um so he told the story of like, you know, I, and, and, and he literally tells it like Billy Graham is a central part of his <laughs> conversion story. Like you can't get more like exciting for a lot of Christians in America. And so his reliance on biblical language in response to 9-11, I mean, a lot has been written about how American war making uses biblical language. And that's a really complicated, um, a lot of that can be a lot of that can be easily condemned. Some of it's a lot more complicated. But I think for him, what's important for us to, to think about in relationship to this, um, especially for people who are going like, you know, like our age, I don't really remember that. I don't know how that really yeah. shapes, you know, my context today. I think what we should ask ourselves is, what do we want from presidents or from other political leaders? And if we care about their faith, why? And what difference does it make? Do we want someone who's just on our team? who's like, oh, I know that guy. He's one of us. Do we want someone that uses the language of scripture? But maybe in the case of Obama, I mean, he was pretty explicit about the language being powerful, but not very often as explicit about like, is this real? <laughs> like, Is this actually true? Like, does this have power outside of rhetoric? Um, and I think for both of them, I think then the question is, do we care that our leaders have Christian motivations for the policies they support? Obama got lambasted, you know, midway through his presidential career for giving kind of explicit biblical reasons for some of the policies he was supporting and mostly by conservatives. And so it's worth asking, like, what do we want from our presidents? Do we want their policies to be explicitly Christian? Um, and if we do, then we've got to have a lot harder conversations about what it means for a policy to be really motivated by scripture. Um, I don't think either of them, when they did quote scripture, did it in a way that, you know, my, any of my seminary professors would probably like, but, yeah. but it's worth asking, like, what does it, what does it mean to me when I hear a leader quote scripture? Um, how does it make me feel and why, and what do I really want to hold them accountable for and to, um, those are questions I don't think we often ask in an election season, but they have great power over us when people either quote scripture or kind of claim a Christian identity. Yeah. I mean, I think even, you know, outside of this, like in the arts, even when people don't know something from scripture, Scripture has powerful language. So yes. when you use it, it's recognized as powerful. You know, uh, Michael Jackson writing on the wall, right? I mean, you're looking at that. Um, even more recently, a little bit more niche, I guess, but like Greta Van Vliet has the song of um, even the sinner breaks the bread, drinks the wine. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, religious language is in arts because it's powerful. Yeah. We're going to yeah. use it in politics because the person who gives the most powerful speech comes out on top, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Whether yeah. that's a good thing or a bad thing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's worth asking, like, <laughs> what is this doing to me? It yeah. does evoke a sense of transcendence and moral authority, and that can be quite dangerous. And I had to really limit myself in this book from just giving every example of <laughs> yeah. like really bad use because there's way too many. That doesn't okay. mean there aren't good uses. It does mean, though, that this thing is like radioactive. Like it can be really powerful, but in what direction and in what way? And some of that conversation, if I'm remembering, I think I'm remembering from uh, Kristen Cobez Dumais' book, but the um, – the Cold War stuff, where we kind of yeah. decided, yeah, Marxism, atheists, those are the bad guys. You know, Americans like Jesus. <laughs> and it's like, uh, you know, that really created some long-term issues. It really is amazing how many things we think of as like long-standing American ideas that were really 60s, yeah. 70s, maybe 50s at the, at the earliest. And they were really politically motivated, which again is not, I mean oh, – yeah. There have been tons of examples of like this melding of politics and, and Christianity in America that were oriented towards good things. I don't think we want to wholesale reject all of that, but I do think it's always worth asking, like, 
is this thing as old as I think it is? I mean, this comes back <laughs> yeah. to the Bible question too. It's like, is this interpretation as like consistent throughout time and in different places in the world as I'm tempted to think it is? Or is this just like the thing that happens in my time and place that I act as if it's universal and longstanding and it's not? Yeah. yeah. Those tend to be pretty surprising. Yeah. It's, I think it's super interesting because it'll happen, you know, people convince themselves that something is a tradition, uh, all over the world, like in Italy, you know, like Italian cuisine, cooking, that's, you know, big Italian tradition. If you ask somebody's Italian grandparents, they'll tell you that their, you know, their traditional way to cook was cook to survive because, you know, it wasn't great times in Italy six, 70 years yeah. ago. And even in, uh, what was it? Like young earth creationism. Oh, yeah. That's not, that is not 2000 years old. Yep. Yeah, but is it ten thousand years old? No. So in uh, your in the book, not in the book, in the world right now, uh, politically for us at least, uh, we'd like to ask you about the current term for the Supreme Court. Uh, a lot of people think the court's been extra partisan because of how a few of the most recent decisions came out, uh, but the stats actually show that the court's been less divided on partisan lines than the past years. So as someone who spends a lot of time thinking about the intersection between faith and politics, uh, we were curious to hear your analysis of the court's decisions this term. Mm, that's Big a question. lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm i not an expert in this. I'm not a legal expert. Um, I do think it's interesting, as you just described, like the perception people have versus what's kind of reality. Um I, I think we pay a lot more attention and we have more access to like minute by minute analysis of these things. Um, you know, on the podcast that I do on the Holy Post, we waited a week to talk about, you know, like the big three cases that came out right at the end of the term. And it was like, oh, it's too late now. Everyone's read all of the things. It's like, that's a week. <laughs> you don't, you need less time than a week to digest this, to read things, to think about it. Um, so I think that's, that's actually what this last term has really made me reflect on is the pitfalls of our constant access. And this relates to kind of a, a soapbox of mine, which is like, I think people tend to, when I talk about, you know, the importance of political engagement, I know a lot of people that are like, yes, love it. I'm so excited about that. I've watched the West Wing. Mm -hmm. Like I want to be really politically involved. So I'm just going to watch a ton of C-SPAN. I remember this when the Speaker of the House oh, vote yeah. was happening. I knew a lot of people who were like, who's with me on like being informed citizens and we're going to watch a ton of C-SPAN. And, and I just don't think that that level of attention to the biggest national questions is the political engagement you think it is. Um, paying attention to a Supreme Court case like the affirmative action case, like the um, you know religious freedom case, like the um, student debt relief case makes sense. I mean, that has practical effects on a lot of people. I was curious. I've got a little mm -hmm. bit of student debt. Like I would like to know how that happens. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that matters. Um, but I think we are limited finite creatures um, you cannot do it all. You cannot be informed about all of it. And I fear a lot of people trade off um, really intimate, devoted local work for obsessive attention to big national issues that realistically they won't have a lot of a lot of power over. Um, and I don't say that to completely avoid your question. I partially <laughs> say that because as we approach a big election year, um, I don't, it does matter. Those big Supreme Court decisions, it all mm -hmm. trickles down eventually. Like who's the president does matter for that. And what, you know, the makeup of the houses matters for that. all of those are important questions. But I fear as people approach 2024, their focus is, and this is a, is not just an evangelical issue, but it is a pretty evangelical issue to care. I mean, the last few years, at least mm -hmm. Supreme Court, like was the thing, like what the Supreme Court makeup <laughs> is, is the most important yeah. thing. I just think it would behoove a lot of us as we approach this next year, both because I think it would have better practical effects and because it would be better for our souls if we put some pretty severe limits on the attention that we paid to big national cases, um, Supreme Court cases, big national elections, and said, I'm going to do an audit of my time. How much of my attention is paid to local judges that have mm -hmm. huge influence on vulnerable people in my community? Um, I know school board stuff is like all the rage right now, but most of the time we're actually paying attention to the school board in a different area where something crazy happened, not the school board in our community. Um, boring city council, like just boring jobs that have actual 
like real effects on our neighbors, that knowing how to approach those questions requires having deep relationships with vulnerable people in our communities and then spending truly time. Like it does take a lot more time to be invested in knowing who the important players are in our local issues and local elections. But I do think it would both be like better for the world. And in God's economy, that small change at a local level is more important than selling your soul for the big national change. And that's really ultimately what I think is important is like our attention to local issues doesn't completely prevent us from losing our soul in the process. But I think it's a lot less likely than if we're con- you know putting all of our energy towards big national issues. Yeah, I, I think I just I was confronted with that last week before last. Uh, I was talking to my friend about the uh, I think it was the governor of Wisconsin. How he like Mm -hmm. just put through fiscal support for Wisconsin public schools for like the next 400 years or something by omitting like specific letters, (laughs) which was super funny. But then he was like, oh, man, do you see the bill that Roy Cooper signed recently? I was like, no, (laughs) yeah, no clue. Henry McMaster, not even once ever. So, you know, just kind of got to be involved in your actual community. Yeah, Yeah. that's uh, That's where everybody gets really shocking when I explain like. I don't like to say Republican, but if you're actually going to nail down, yeah, I uh, Republican in the sense that I, I value my local governments way more than the federal government. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think one of the um, just thinking of like this term and the symbol like what you were talking about. But um, one of the things that really stood out to me is how many people, again, just looking at the results. And I'm like, you know, the religious freedom thing, actually freedom of speech thing. If that had been yeah. any other thing, <laughs> you know, like if it wasn't a Christian trying to be forced to say something that most of the culture agrees with, like if it had been the other way around, they'd been really glad that that out came, came out the way it did. Yeah. And it's like a lot of times I feel like we forget that what's advantageous to our side is going to turn around when the other side's in charge. You know, it's like, you know, actually um, maybe, maybe not just give all the power to your guys when they're there. Cause it will turn around and get you. I think that goes really well with some of our next questions, but just kind of thinking of like, again, valuing, our communities over partisan stuff, valuing how we get there more than the outcomes. I think all those things are like, I don't know, that's where I think it's really important yeah. to think about where stuff like your book's really helpful. Thank you. Yeah. So as you may know, our show primarily about Christian unity, church unity. Uh, one interesting point in all of this to our, is, to our listeners uh, particularly is how divided parts of the church in America have become over clearly political partisan lines. Is there a way we can mend some of the damage done to the American church around these topics without asking everyone to suddenly agree on their political ideology ideologies? I don't know what word I was about to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's really good. Um, so part of my desire behind this was, like I said, to say we have this incredible resource available to us. Um, we don't agree on everything about scripture. That's a huge part of the book I wrote. But for, for the most part in our churches, we agree that this is an important text that is supposed to shape our life together. Um, and so I do think we need to turn to that and and really find ways to make that a place of common ground more than it has been. Um, I think that's an important place in which in which we can say, as I said before, where are the like goals for our communities that we can agree on, even if the method that we use to get there will be different. And we'll have to hash out what that looks like. Um, some of that, I don't think we either realize how much agreement we have about what a flourishing community requires. Um, and sometimes we actually don't realize how many scriptural resources there are for telling us. Like, it's not just use the Bible to kind of beat someone over their head, but to say like, okay, if we're in Jeremiah for six months, months and we're like studying this together. Are there not descriptions of common life that maybe you didn't actually think the Bible had something to say about, but it, it does actually, um, (laughs) again, not to be like, ha I was right. But just to say like, we can learn together. Like, let's find some things that maybe we didn't realize were there together. I think the other thing that's really important is for ourselves. a, A lot of times when people will ask me about like, dealing with political differences in their church. What they really mean is like, mm-hmm. help me deal with this annoying other person. <laughs> and I usually, <laughs> yeah. I really want to use like me, I language to just be like, this is a me thing. Like I have to do this myself, um, which is partially first to say, after a conversation, there should be some habits you have in place for evaluating how that conversation went. And most of them should be internally focused. Our impulse after a political conversation is to evaluate everything they said, come up with all the best things we didn't say at the time that would have really shown them that they were wrong. Could we pause for a moment and ask, at what points in this conversation did I feel most threatened and why? And what part of me felt threatened? Like really be honest with ourselves about 
how our sense of who we are, what community we belong to, what things we think about ourselves are most valuable, felt threatened by this political disagreement that we had with someone, Mm -hmm. which is partially why, even though, you know, I've kind of described this to people as like, I wrote this book about spiritual formation in politics. (laughs) Then I wrote this book about the Bible and politics. Really, the second book is about spiritual formation too, because a huge part of our ability to interpret scripture well together is practices of, of, am I the kind of person who can come to the text and hear the thing that goes against my political preferences, hear the thing that goes against my sense of what a good, happy life is? Like, can I hear the word against me? What it's borrowing from Bonhoeffer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he gave this famous speech where he was like, this is the question. Is sometimes scripture not for you? It's against you? Um, which feels especially poignant knowing he was giving that speech just like right before the rise of Hitler in Germany, like, Mm -hmm. and a, and a church in Germany that went kind of right along with it. You know, um, could I hear that maybe my aspirations of power and greatness are wrong? Actually, I don't get that. Like, that's not something that's owed to me. Um, those are spiritual formation questions. And I think in our churches, if together we said, we're not in pursuit when we come to study scripture together of total agreement, including in our political lives, we're actually in pursuit of what habits or practices before and during and after reading scripture together could we be in that make me a better person and make you a better person to read this well and hear the word against ourselves? Even if when it comes down to the particulars of policy, we come to different conclusions, we both are the people who are willing to hear the word against ourselves. That's that's a spiritual formation question that has to come over a long period of time with like a lot of slow work. This is not, here's a list of hermeneutical principles and we'll just get these disagreements ironed out. This is, we're in the long haul together of working this out. And even if we come to to real disagreement at the end of it, I'm happy if if more churches are the kind of people that can read scripture well, even if they're disagreeing about the specific things that are the result of that reading of scripture. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's, um. I'm really glad you brought up Bonhoeffer because like that goes to, a lot of why this stuff is important, you know, yeah. why it's important to have these calmer voices. You know, I, I know there's a lot of people that are, you know, similar to my vein that get ridiculed for always talking about Christian nationalism, why it's so evil, all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, but that's um, that's what Hitler did. Bonhoeffer was the one pushing against it. That, that's a good thing, you know, not making that that's what Hitler did argument, but now we're seeing it with Russia, right? And it's like, yeah, we we kind of don't want to see anything remotely similar here. That's why we're pushing against that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I literally have up on my wall the Barman Declaration, primarily authored by Karl Barth, nice. that, that came out in this period. And I do think if anyone listening hasn't read it, it's just a good it's a good read. But I I think it's so crucial that the answer that was given was not, you know, here's this alternative like partisan approach. The answer that was given is, don't you dare enlist Jesus for your political project. Like, this is the word of God. Nothing else gets substituted for the word of God. Um, and I, I agree. I mean, I think a return to reading Bonhoeffer, to reading Bart, um, would help us not not just because, oh, their situation is exactly the same as ours. In some significant ways, <laughs> it is not. But to yeah. say, we are not without resources in the Christian tradition for asking these kinds of questions. The captivity of the church to political power is nothing new. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can learn from our brothers and sisters around the world in different times and places. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's got such interesting wall decor. I've got like <laughs> hats. I like the hats. I like the hats. Oh, thank you. They look like hearts though, which makes they do it super kind of interesting. Look like hearts. <laughs> Yeah, the other day I just thought he had a bunch of heart balloons on his wall. Like, Valentine's, yeah. Hey, you know, it's cute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's almost Valentine's Day. Uh, yeah. So is it possible for the church to engage in politics without dividing our members? I think so. I mean, like I said, I really think if we are thinking exclusively in big national terms, probably not. Like at the end of the day, you're a Republican, you're a Democrat. And if that's mm-hmm. a part of your Christian identity, then yeah, we're going to see continual churches that are split along those lines. That's already been often true. Mm-hmm. When I think about the churches I know that have a lot of political diversity, they're often churches that see it as integral to their identity to be political, but in the sense of we are for the community that we're in. And mm-hmm. you and I might disagree about some big national political issue, but we agree that the local community center having you know zoning restrictions that help them build the facilities they need for after-school activities for at-risk kids is a good thing. So we show up at the meeting together and talk it out. Um, That's where I think a lot of unity could actually be found, is to say, like, the big national issues get all treated as identity issues. This is the kind of person I am, and this is the things I believe in and the community I belong to. And what if for a second we said, 
that we don't have to try and bridge some of those differences. What if the best way to actually defeat the way that those identities captivate us is by saying, actually, my political life is mostly showing up at a church for a meeting. And it's like a boring work of politics (laughs) in a local setting. But I actually find more that I can can compromise on in that level than I can at the national level. Yeah. Yeah. So we like to cheat a little bit here and and be good interviewers. (laughs) Uh, But you've done quite a few. Uh, So is there anything that comes up infrequently or not at all when you get interviewed that excites you that you would like to talk about? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, in some sense, we kind of just talked about it, which is that I don't get to talk about Bonhoeffer (laughs) enough. And I love, I mean, I really, I end the book with two of my favorite things. And I'm sure that people, you know, I hope people read to the end, but if they don't, I feel like they'll miss like one of the best things, which is both this description of, of what Bonhoeffer said of, we have to be able to read the word of the Lord against us. But the biblical example that I think is is the coolest, which is the prophet Hulda, uh, who the King Josiah, when he discovers the law, sends for a prophet to interpret it. Hulda comes along, um, which is just on a personal level, like a fun, like, you know, she's a known enough prophet in a role <laughs> of authority of interpreting scripture that the king says, find me a prophet. And she's the one that comes. She's not mm-hmm. kind of in the backwoods doing her own thing. Like, no, she's seen as an authority to interpret this. And the response of both her and Josiah, her looking at the word of the Lord and saying, we are failing and judgment is coming. That's mm-hmm. th- that's how I want to be. Like <laughs> open to the possibility yeah. that I will come to scripture and it will say, you are wrong and this is wrong. Um, yeah. But then I think the most incredible thing about that story too is that the response of Josiah is repentance. Like he has every reason as the king to say, no, 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 you're reading that wrong. Like you're reading scripture wrong, your interpretation's wrong, or you're <laughs> yeah. reading us wrong. You're not seeing correctly that we're actually doing fine. And also God wouldn't really follow through with any of that. Like we're fine. His response is repentance. Um, and he's rewarded for that. And so I think we, it's a weird story. I mean, I don't think I had heard of Holda until I was in seminary, um, but a good place to go to say, this is a, a positive story of hearing the word of the Lord against us. And what does it look like for us to, to be the kind of people that can, can model Holden and Josiah in doing that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm too defensive to be, to be like Josiah. <laughs> I always defend myself. But then later I'm like, actually, I didn't, I knew I was wrong. I just reflex defended myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But which unfortunately is a huge part of church <laughs> unity is being able to set yourself aside. You like stop being defensive. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Also, one of my worst habits, TJ has just a list of my wrong opinions. So I don't know if this counts as an opinion, but I have this tendency when I get a new book to read the first page and then the last page, and then I'll read the book. Just because, you know, there's been a few times where I got to the end of the book and went, oh, I just spent weeks. So this guy could just do a gotcha at the end. I just didn't want that to happen again. You know, (laughs) I I think that's honestly a good habit. Yeah, it's not that. It's worked out for me. (laughs) Oh, sweet. The list of bad opinions is much worse. <laughs> so where can our audience go to pre-order the ballot in the Bible, how scripture has been used and abused in American politics and where we go from here? Anywhere you buy books. But right now, if you go through Baker's website, you get free shipping and a pretty discounted price. So that's always a good Ooh, option. Nice. But anywhere you normally pre-order books, you can get it. Are you one of those just like trying not to go to Amazon if you can help it or you don't care? I mean, I, I indulge in shopping on Amazon, so I cannot judge anyone, but I do think, you know, for the goodness of the book industry, (laughs) um, it is not the best thing ever. So in this case you get free shipping. So it's not even like you have an incentive to go to Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to disparage Amazon, but man, that, what a service. Yeah. It's just so convenient. (laughs) I have a package arriving tomorrow. I ordered it 10 minutes ago. I have stuff that arrived that I just don't even remember ordering. Like, it's just, it knew I I needed that, it seems like. You should work on that. That's concerning. (laughs) It is. Yeah. It's pretty bad. Go to a psychiatrist. (laughs) Anyway, so we always like to ask our guest, um, if you could just provide a single tangible action, something our listeners could go do right now that would help engender church unity, what's one practical thing you'd have people go do this moment? Uh, email the nursery coordinator at your church and offer to help in the nursery. Ooh, man, that was specific. I just, I mean, I I used to work in children's ministry (laughs) and volunteers is the worst. I mean, the worst part of that job is feeling you're constantly asking people to do something they don't want to do, but truly 
I really do, and I said this earlier, this is a soapbox of mine, but I think generational differences in churches will continue to be a much greater driver of our division than other things. They often just replicate those other things. Um, And I think one of the best ways to overcome that is not just that you're serving kids and so you're in a different, you know, that's a generational, cross-generational thing, but you will inevitably be serving with people that are not the people that you would most naturally be a part of in your church. And so... Two birds, one stone. You get to do something practically good and faithful in your church, and you get to contribute to to building community across lines of difference that you might not cross otherwise. So, so what repercussions would we see in the church if everyone just started volunteering for the nursery? I mean, one practical thing I think we would see is we would see more people in churches because we have space for kids. Like, I do do genuinely think the more safe and hospitable our churches are for wiggly, loud children, the more safe, hospitable places they are for all kinds of people, not just children. And I think the more that people have kind of like the real tangible experience of serving with kids, the more integrated our churches are as one family and the more we are okay with the kids, even when they're not in the nursery, even when it's in the service and someone's crying and it's someone's wiggling next to you. Like when you've spent more time with those kids, it changes your experience of, of the whole family of God. And that, that to me is like the whole ball game right there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So true. I just couldn't help but imagine like, overnight their issues go from hating to ask people for for help to man i don't know what to do with all these people that would be great that would be the best problem ever (laughs) oh man yeah so before we start to wrap up we like to do what's called the god moment and we ask everyone to share a moment in their lives recently where they saw god whether that be a blessing challenge a moment of worship whatever the case may be we want to know and i always make josh go first to give you are esteemed guest and myself <laughs> enough time to think about what our God moment's going to be for this episode. Uh, so Josh, do you have a God moment for us this week? Yeah. As what seems to be coming more common, which maybe I should work on this. My God moment's a whole day. So <laughs> last Saturday, uh, July 15th was the seventh year anniversary of my accident. I've talked on here before where, you know, had my whole moment with death and all that. Um, and you know, in years past, I've either tried to ignore it or just kind of moped that day or, you know, just reflect or did like a spiritual moment. But this time, I didn't tell people that it's, it was that day. We had an event for our other podcast. We did some live podcasts. We played card games. I enjoyed my day. The day actually started off, or it might have been the night before, where I saw now, I mentioned my pollinator garden on here a few times. There was two nests up there. So I saw where I've been contributing to life in my own local ecosystem that I built on the side of my house for some reason. And then also enjoyed life instead of just being like, oh, well, I guess I lived, you know, actually experiencing it and enjoying uh, the gift God gave me to still be here. Yeah. Amazing. Baron, I also did not realize that's what day that was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was. <laughs> Yeah. I've known you the whole time. That's crazy. Yeah. So weird. Yeah. For me, I think my God moment is going to be kind of just most of my friends, because I've mentioned each of them separately over the past several weeks, getting new opportunities that they were able to take advantage of. It just seems like everything's going so well for everyone around my age, around me. And Mm -hmm. that's, you know, the prosperity of my friends is something I could never even imagine to ask for. Mm -hmm. So very grateful. Yeah. Hmm. So, Caitlin, do you have a God moment for us? Yeah. um, You know, I like three or four times in the last month, I have had issues with contacts getting like dislodged during church, probably because I'm a weepy person and I cry every church service. Um, But it's way been way more than usual. And this last week, um, I had a contact kind of get dislodged. And so I got out of the pew like as the sermon was starting and I hate, like, I, I feel embarrassed, like leaving, you know, and I don't want anyone to think there's like too many doctoral students in theology at my church. Like I fear that our pastors think that we're like taking a stand <laughs> against something they've said. And I walked out of the service and I was like fixing it in the bathroom, left the bathroom. And just as I was about to go back to the service, there was this teenage girl who I looked familiar to me. I've hung out with the youth a few times at my church, but I didn't know her just bawling, like just really crying. And I was so hesitant because I was like, I, when I'm having a moment like that, I don't necessarily want a stranger to talk to me. Like, I don't know what I should do. So I just like, kind of just said something like, Oh, sweetheart, like, you know, and she paused and I truly like 
Holy Spirit, thank you. Because my impulse in that moment was just to be like, okay, you okay? Okay, bye. And something in me just was like, I don't know, talk to her. Mm-hmm. And the second that I looked her in the eye and said, I think I said something like, do you want a friend or do you want to talk? Or um, she just like grabbed me. Like was she just was looking for someone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I roll my eyes at the people who will draw, you know, great significance mm-hmm. from these little things. But I just – I really think in that moment, like I needed a dislodged contact <laughs> to like be at the right place at the right <laughs> yeah. time for this very distressed teenage girl who I think needed someone exactly my age because a lot of what she was going through was both stuff I remember. I'm close enough to those years that I get it. And also someone who could be like, you're going to be okay. Like it's going to, you're going to survive this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I love my church and I love getting to to feel a part of a real family. And that was a moment of like, we take care of each other. Like, this is not my kid. This is not my problem. And I, I feel like it was not just like, Oh, I'm serving you. It was like, I get the gift of being the person that you just run into in the hallway and grab. Like that is a joy to me. Um, so yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Personally, I'm a huge fan of the little things. Yeah. 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 I'm like five, six. So it's kind of (laughs) necessary. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend, uh, share it with an enemy, share it with your cousins. Yeah, preferably. Uh, yeah, my cousin's getting married this weekend. Maybe he'll finally listen to the episode. Who knows? <laughs> uh, and if you're listening to this on the AMP Network YouTube channel, uh, be sure to hit the like button and subscribe. If you aren't, thank you for listening anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Also, check out all the other shows that are part of the Amazon Ministries podcast network. Um, the website's in the show notes. You see all the podcasts. There's like a convenient single stream of all the shows on Spotify. Pretty nice. Mm-hmm. And I we hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, come back next week. We'll have another Dividing Scriptures episode. We'll be discussing scriptures the church has historically disagreed about. After that, we'll have another roundtable discussion, this time focusing around what traps churches often fall into. And then we'll be interviewing uh, Serena Higgins, host of the 1619 and 1776 podcast another Christian unity podcast or church unity podcast. And finally, at the end of season one, we will have Francis Chan on the show. Yeah. He doesn't know though. So if you see him, let him know. (laughs) Yeah. Unconfirmed RSVP. (laughs) Yeah. Unreceived RSVP. Probably. I still feel like when we started this bit and we were just interviewing pastors that were within reach of us, this was a lot funnier, but it's funny in a different way now. Yeah, now it's now it's yeah. sad funny. Now it's yeah. like, why won't Francis Chan answer us? <laughs> I was like, come on, man, we had we had your friend on. Yeah, it's good times. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Whole Church Podcast. Again, you could always sponsor our show at patreon.com forward slash the whole church podcast or on captivate.fm or on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave us a one-time tip through Captivate. Thank you for listening.